Well, today we are starting a series called The Stories That Shape Us. The Stories That Shape Us. You know, when I think about the things that have shaped uh, people and culture throughout history, I don't know that there's anything that has been more consistently used throughout the history of the world than the art of storytelling. Whether it's through movies or whatever medium, we'll talk about that in just a second, it has made an impact in our life. How many of you, when you were watching that, I'm just curious, have seen every movie that, that had just played on there? Okay, so several of you. How many of you would say I've seen at least a couple of them? Okay, yeah, because stories shape our life. Stories have helped us understand or informed us about history. It has shaped the moral fabric of our culture. It's changed our perspective. It's educated us. It has shaped who we are both individually and as who we are as a culture. We see that. And not only that, it touches every emotion that we have. Probably most of us, whether we're willing to admit it or not, have laughed in a movie, cried in a movie, sat on pins and needles in a great suspense movie. And if you grew up like I did camping, uh, you've probably sat around a fire or with a flashlight in the middle of the woods and been scared to death because of ghost stories, right? Like we've all experienced those emotions inside of the art of storytelling. And not only is storytelling something that is diverse in how it affects us, it's diverse in how it takes place. When we look at um, culture in history, we can see that storytelling was most used early on in the art of oral tradition, that people would sit down and they would just simply share stories. What's interesting is many of us wouldn't necessarily think about the Bible in this way, but the first uh, part of scripture was given through the art of oral tradition. The first time Genesis was relayed to people, it wasn't through the written word. It was through generation passing along story to generation. And then later on it was written. That is a consistency in the history of the world. That it, that which is important was explained and told through story. But we don't just have uh, the art of storytelling through oral tradition through telling stories. We also have storytelling through visual ways of telling stories. The earliest that we can see in, in history would probably be the theater. We think about the Roman Colosseum that packed out thousands for people to come and not just hear stories, but see stories being uh, played out. Obviously, the more modern version of that is the thing that we do, let's be honest, a little too much of, and that's watching TV. That's why all of you knew at least some of those uh, clips because you have engaged in the art of storytelling through television. And it's not just, okay, well, I'll admit it, probably some of us are a little more addicted to it than others. However, there is a, a reality that the art of storytelling when we sit down and watch TV is captivating for a reason. Because it's a different way that helps us better understand whatever story that we're trying uh, to experience. Storytelling is extremely important. And when you look in the, the history of scripture and you look in the history of just uh, the Jewish culture in general, they would actually say that there were two different ways that they would educate people. This speaking specifically in the Old Testament, one of them would be delivering data, right? Like, so one plus one equals two. Like very specific, you don't need a story to explain basic math. However, when you look at the majority of what they would teach, people in, in Jewish history. Most of it was done through the art of story. 
It was done through the art of story. Whether they were explaining their own history or they were trying to explain something that was very important. And when it was something that was very important and hard to understand, they would explain it through something called a parable. A story that was fictional, a story that wasn't um, actually a true story, but it was a story designed and crafted for people to understand something that was super uh, big, super deep, hard to understand, and put it in a way that anyone could get it. And this concept of parable teaching is, for most of us, we would know that, that word parable from Jesus' time. But I think it's important that we understand that Jesus did not come up with the concept of parables by any stretch of the imagination. It was much older than Jesus. He was actually diving into what most people would have known as something that a rabbi would use to teach a deep theological truth. This is consistent all throughout um, the Old Testament. You can see it in some different places, but especially when you dive into Jewish history, you would see rabbis giving uh, parables for different things constantly. And it's, it's actually very interesting to study, at least for me. I'm, I'm a little bit of a geek. And so I, I appreciate those kind of details. But there's, there's something very interesting about Jesus' choice here. Jesus chose to go in and begin to teach about the kingdom of God through this thing called a parable. And the question is why? Because Jesus was doing his best to put these huge theological truths and these things that he wanted us to understand about why he was here and who God was into a context that we would understand. But not only that, he wanted to put them inside of a context that would shape us. That he wasn't just going to give us information, but he was wrapping these deep truths about who he was and about who God the Father is in a way that would make an impact on us for the rest of our lives. He wanted to give us something that would shape us. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to spend time uh, in stories that Jesus told and ask the question, what, what was Jesus trying to relay to us? And what was Jesus trying to uh, shape? What part of our lives was Jesus trying to shape? So if you've got a Bible, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. We're going to read a story that is probably familiar to most of us, but we're going to look at it from a few different ways this morning. It's the story that most of us know is the prodigal son. It says this, and he, he being Jesus, said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property on reckless living. And when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one would give him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He felt compassion on him and ran toward him and embraced him, and he kissed him. 
And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and, the, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and now he is alive. He was lost and now he is found. And they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field as he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing and he called for one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But, this, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead, and now he is alive. He was lost, and now he is found. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this story that helps us better understand you as, as our heavenly father. And Lord, as we dive in to this, to this passage, I pray that we wouldn't just take information away from this story, but we would allow this story to shape us. We would allow this story to, to help us deeply understand how much you desire uh, to be in right relationship with us. We ask these things in your name, Jesus Christ, the strong son of God. Amen and amen. I want to admit something to you this morning. I think that confession is good for the soul. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm a little accident prone. How many accident prone people do I have? If you're online, let us know in the chat that you're accident prone. Come on, raise your hands, wave at me. You're a little accident prone. Okay, see, I have a theory. For every person who raised their hand that they're accident prone, there's probably three people in this room that are actually accident prone. The rest of you do this thing where you pretend like you aren't accident prone because you have an excuse for every accident that's in your life, right? Like you have a, you have a way to justify, oh, it wasn't, it wasn't my fault that this happened. It was on somebody else. Yet, for some reason, if we lined up your amount of accidents and other people's amount of accidents, they would probably equal the same amount. Now, I'm just curious, after having said that, how many of you would say that you're accident prone? All right, we got like one more. All right, fine, liars. All right, so, no, I'm just kidding. But most of us struggle with that. Like when we are prone to something, we struggle with admitting it. It took me a long time to come up with the reality and be willing to say I'm accident prone. But I have enough evidence against me. Uh, I've had accidents ever since I was a little boy. When I was about five years old, uh, I drove a truck over my own foot. Literally, I did that. When I was about uh, five or six years old, I was playing like I was pretending driving in a 1978 uh, behemoth. Uh, that's what they're called, Dodge behemoths. And so it was just this huge off-roading truck with big off-road tractor tires. And I knocked it out of gear because it was kind of loose. I fell out of the truck because the door was open and it ran over my foot. Uh, true story. I uh, split my own ring finger open with a uh, table saw one time. I was building our... 
uh, dining room table, which we still have today, and a piece of wood shot out from the saw. The saw sent it flying, and it split my, my ring finger, right? You can, if you look closely, you can actually see like where the nail is still not grown back. I have no feeling in this part of that finger whatsoever. It's been years. Uh, I, I'm a little accident prone. Not only that, I have fallen asleep at the wheel of a vehicle, and I flipped it three times. I woke up in midair, and I remember, this is not a joke, this is going to sound like hyperbole, it's true. I remember waking up and thinking, oh, this is how I'm going to die. And so, like, I remember having that moment thinking, this is not going to end well. And so, uh, it, was, it was bad. It was, it was not good. Uh, and then the last one that I'll tell you is, when I was in college, I was a youth leader for a camp. And uh, I spent many years going as the youth leader to the youth camp that I went to in high school. And uh, I, you know how it is when you're in a hurry. Like, you pack all your toiletries, you throw them into a bag, and uh, you're going about your business you get to camp the next day and I grabbed my toothbrush and my toothpaste and I started brushing my teeth and my mouth started to burn. And I thought, this is not good. And I realized I wasn't brushing my teeth with toothpaste. I was brushing it with triple antibiotic ointment. And in case you're curious, it's not the same. It doesn't work the same. And so in case you're curious, it was not pleasant. And so uh, there's a reason why it says don't let this go inside of your body. And so uh, I learned that the hard way. I'm a little accident prone. And whether you're accident prone or not, you're prone to something, right? Most of us have something that we do that, we're just, uh, that we just struggle with, right? Like maybe you are completely, uh, like you've never hurt yourself in your life, but you're always a little late, right? Like there are people who are prone to not being on time. Uh, and for what's interesting is for people who are not on time all the time, you have all the grace in the world for people who are also a little late, right? Have you ever noticed though that the people who are, never, who are always on time though have no grace whatsoever for the people who are always a little late? Some of you who are married are looking at each other. It's not gonna end well. I would stop doing that. Anyway, whether, whether you're always late or you always lose things, we all have these propensities uh, to these idiosyncrasies in our life, right? Like we just have those, those things that we can't really do anything about because we're just imperfect people. Yet for all of us, we tend to respond the same way in our life to other people's idiosyncrasies. If, if I have an issue and I see somebody who also has that issue, we kind of deflate it. We kind of pretend like it's not a big deal. We, we let it, even though it might annoy us a little bit in the moment, we kind of downplay it. Yet when they have something else in their life that you don't struggle with, it becomes a problem. Like, you shouldn't do this on principle. Why? Because I don't struggle with that thing. And you shouldn't either. That's what we're ultimately saying. That's what, and it sounds kind of funny when you put it in that context, but that's what we're doing. We're ultimately saying my issues are less of an issue than your issues and you need to get on my same page. We would never say it like this, but what we're ultimately communicating is I am better than you and you should not struggle with things different than what I struggle with. We do this, and we would never verbalize it like that, but that is ultimately at the foundation of who we are, the thing that we're communicating. That, that what that person is dealing with is more of a problem than the thing that I'm dealing with. And this issue, it kind of seems like 
cookies on the bottom shelf, low-level issues where we talk about idiosyncrasies or little quirks that people have. However, it becomes a bigger issue when we replace goofy little issues and we begin to talk about the reality of brokenness and sin in our life. And when Jesus is telling this story that we often call the prodigal son, what he's, what he's not dealing with, we, we often call it the prodigal son, which is actually a, not a really good title for this story because the prodigal son is like half of the story. Some people would call it the prodigal son or the lost son. If you look in uh, Jewish history, most people would have originally called this story the story of the lost sons. Because how does it begin? There was a man with two sons. And in this story, there, there are three main characters. There is the father, and then there is the first son that we hear about, which is the youngest, which is a little confusing because he's the first, but the youngest. And then there is also the older son. And obviously, when we listen to this story, or we read this story, that we know who the father is. We understand the role of the dad. He is helping us understand the character and nature of God inside of the story. He's helping us see what God the Father's desire is for his sons. And that is for there to be reconciliation. And that reconciliation only comes through the grace that the Father affords his children. But if we read this story and only understand it from the point of what happens with the prodigal, we miss half of the application of the story. We miss actually the whole point of the story because the whole point of the story isn't just that somebody went away and sinned and then came back. The point of the story is that there is a diversity in brokenness and regardless of the type of brokenness that you have in your life, God ultimately desire, desires to reconcile with you. The problem is that we do what the older son did in the story. And that is whether you have uh, dynamics like the younger son or the older son, we downplay the brokenness and sin in our own life and pretend like it's not even real. And we look at other people's sin and we say, ah, that, that's terrible. I can't believe that person would do that. And so in this story, one of the things that Jesus is trying to help us understand is the diversity of our brokenness. For the younger son, he had sin that was very obvious, right? It, and it, when you see sin like this, it, it becomes easy to pinpoint it. I mean, the Bible says that he walks in, Jesus says that the son walks in, and he tells his father, I want you to give me everything that you would when you die right now, which is interesting because it's disrespectful to the father, but also to the older brother. Why? Because in this context, the older brother would be the first to receive his inheritance, and not only that, he would also receive a bigger portion. And so to say to his father and to his brother that, that you want that inheritance now would be like saying, I care so little about you, I want to pretend that you're dead. That, that's what he's communicating. And then the Bible says that he goes off and spends it, in, in my translation, it says in reckless living. We also get an idea that he spent that money on prostitutes. So we kind of have an idea of what that reckless living was because that's what his older brother accuses him of later. And we see this guy have very outward and very obvious sin. But then there's this other brother. Then there's this brother who has other issues. His issues are not nearly as obvious. They're not nearly as outward as, as his uh, little brothers. His issues are very internal. They're, they're sins and brokenness of pride and arrogance 
And, and not only that, that he sees his relationship with his father more as transactional than relational. He's just trying to keep his head down on the farm. He's just trying to do what he feels like he's supposed to do in order to get the thing that he knows is coming to him, which is his inheritance. The, the younger brother leaves. He leaves physically. Yet the older brother probably left a long time ago emotionally. And we see these two different dynamics of brokenness. And the, and the part of the story that we are made to understand, this is so important, the way that Jesus tells this story, is he's trying to help us understand that these two forms of brokenness are not better or worse than each other. They are just the reality of brokenness. James addresses this later on in one of the books in the New Testament. In the book of James, it says that adultery and murder are on the same level. That he's talking in James chapter 2, he's helping us understand that brokenness is brokenness. And regardless of what type of brokenness you have in your life, regardless of the type of brokenness that you carry, the reality is, is that we are all equally in need of a Savior. And we are all equally in need of the grace that we find through the miracle and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if we understand that and we take on that mentality, it doesn't matter if our sin is internal and hidden or if it is obvious and very outward for people to see. We are still in need of that restorative grace that puts us back in right relationship with our Heavenly Father. Now, what is the problem here? What is ultimately the issue? I think that this is ultimately the issue. That if we were honest and we could say whatever we wanted to and, and nobody would judge us, at the end of the day, we want people that would uh, restore and save our kind, like our kind of issues. But the problem with that is God came to restore mankind, not your kind. God came to restore mankind, not your kind. He didn't just come to, to make a, a gift of grace to the people who struggle with the things that you do. And the problem is, is that we look at what we struggle with and we say we need grace and we need mercy and we need that gift that only comes through what Jesus did. But when we see people that struggle with things that we don't have any issue with whatsoever, we say, put the hammer down. Let's, let's give them judgment. And not only that, especially when it is sin against us, especially when somebody has done something against me, it becomes that much harder for me to say, man, God's grace reaches to that place. The, the, res the restoration that God desires to have with, with that person inside of the relationship so that they can be whole again, it's a struggle for us to ask for that. It's a struggle because they did something against us. And if we're not careful, we'll do exactly what the older son in the story does. We will look at what the other people around us are doing and we will inflate their issues and we will deflate ours and pretend like we have nothing wrong with us. And so the question that I want to spend a little bit of the rest of our time together on is this. How do I choose, how do I choose to step into the restoration that God desires for me to have with him and be open about my own brokenness? 
and be open about the things that I struggle with. How do I do that? Because that's clearly the heart of the story, that, that Jesus is trying to show us this avenue, that we can come into relationship with him Regardless of the type of brokenness we have, we can still come and allow him to restore that relationship. So how do I do that? I want to give you three thoughts this morning. And the first thought is this, that I have to be aware of my brokenness. I have to be aware of my brokenness. Now this sounds pretty easy, right? Because we live in a world that um, emotional intelligence and being self-aware is kind of a thing. The problem that with the culture that we live in is as much as we talk about emotional intelligence and being self-aware, we also live in a world that creates a space for us to justify everything that we do. We also live in a world where just like with our, our goofy idiosyncrasies, we can make up a reason and justify the things that we do and feel better about it without ever actually having conviction in our own life. And we struggle with looking at ourselves in the mirror and saying, I've got some things wrong with me. I've got some things that are broken inside of me. I'm, I'm not perfect. We have to learn to be aware of those things that are in us that are, that are not perfect, that are broken, that are sinful. And this is not like a new issue though. We actually see it in the story that we read. Let's look at it again. Uh, Luke chapter 25, let's look at verse 29. Or sorry, 15 verse 29. It says this, this is him talking to his father, the older brother. But he answered his father and said, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. Now I wanna ask you a question. I know we've done a lot of hand raising this morning, but we're Pentecostal. So anyway, uh, I'm just, I thought it was funny. You don't have to laugh at my jokes. Um, I'm curious, how many of you are children of somebody's? Raise your hand. Okay, so like everybody's. If your hand's not up, you failed biology. Um, but. Okay, now how many of you would say, uh, keep your hands up, keep your hands up for a second. I want you to keep your hands up if you can say, I never disobeyed a command of my parents. <laughs> you know why? Because that's not a thing. Like, it's not a thing. Th this this bald-faced lie this older brother tells his father is not because he's a liar. It's because he's unaware of the reality of his own brokenness. He's unaware of the fact that he has disobeyed his father. He's unaware of the fact that his father uh, had celebrated him at some point. The, the, the audacity to say that even, even if you grew up in a very dysfunctional home, to say that your parents never celebrated you is ridiculous. The issue is, he was blinded by the fact that he is broken and how he was perceiving the moment wasn't actually the truth. He was unaware of his brokenness. And if I'm gonna step into a relationship where I genuinely receive the restorative gift of forgiveness that God deeply desires for me to have from him, that gift of grace, I have to be aware of where I'm broken. The second thing that I have to do is I have to admit my brokenness. I have to be aware of it, but I also have to be willing to admit it. Who do I admit it to? We admit it first to God, and then we need somebody else in our life that we admit it to. 
We need that space. We need space to be able to sit down with people and have those conversations. You know, one of the things that is is difficult depending on where you land in this story. Whether your sin has been very open and very obvious or it's been very internal and very, and very private is that if your sin is open and obvious, it can be easier to admit it because like everybody saw you do it. The problem with the older son was that he was not only not aware, but he was not willing to admit his issues. And when we, when we see this, it's important for us to understand that regardless of those dynamics in our life, we need space to admit our problems. One of the reasons that we have a, a ministry in our church called Celebrate Recovery is because when you have more open issues like addiction or, or those types of issues that come up, we, we want space for you to be able to go and share the, those issues with somebody. We want you to have space to share and admit the things that you struggle with. Why? Because the scripture tells us in James chapter, I believe it's five, that it's either five or uh, two, can't remember off the top of my head, that, that when we confess, that when we confess our sins to one another, we'll be healed. That's what the scripture tells us that we will be healed when we do that. And that's why we have ministries like Celebrate Recovery. And in this story, the sad part is that one son never admits his brokenness, yet the other son does admit his brokenness. He becomes aware of his brokenness in the story. It says that he, he comes to himself. That's what the scripture says, that he comes to himself and he is aware of his brokenness. But then he begins a journey back to his father. And it is in that journey that he begins to admit his issues. And whether you do it in Celebrate Recovery or you do it in a tribe, which we'll have in the fall, where you can have a safe place to admit those things, you need people in your life that you can admit your brokenness to. You need people in your life that know that you're not perfect. Now, I want to be clear, you don't just need to admit to like anybody, right? You know, you don't need to walk into McDonald's after church today and go, hey, listen, I need a Coke I need a Big Mac, I'm an adulterer, and also some French fries. Like that's not, that's not gonna help anybody, right? Like that's not, you know, it may make you feel better, but you don't freak that McDonald's person out. They aren't getting paid enough for that. You know what I'm saying? Like that, that is intense. No, you need a safe place to admit your brokenness. You need a safe place to admit your brokenness where you can say, this is what I struggle with. And I, I, love, I love this truth of scripture that it is in our admission of our brokenness that we begin for the first time to truly receive forgiveness. It is in our admission of brokenness that we really begin to walk out that path of forgiveness. But if we're not aware of it and we won't admit the things that we struggle with, we'll never actually receive the forgiveness that God so freely desires to give us. We need that space for that. So we need to be people who are aware of our brokenness. We need to be people who admit our brokenness. And then lastly, we need to be people who accept forgiveness. We need to be people who accept forgiveness. I think that accepting forgiveness is like a, it's like a two-edged sword, right? Like there's a positive side of that blade and there's a negative side to that blade. Because on the one hand, it's so freeing when you receive forgiveness. There's a freedom that comes in it that, that is unexplainable when you receive and, and acknowledge the grace that you've been given. But it is also very, very, very painful. Because when I choose to accept grace, when I choose to accept that, that um, moment of restoration in my life, 
I'm never more aware of how broken I actually am. I'm never more aware of, of how much I am not who I pretend to be. It was several years ago, um, it's been like three or four now, I think Jackson was just born. My oldest son, he's, he's a, he'll be five in December. And I can remember being in, in a pretty good space uh, spiritually. And I remember I was praying one day in a, in a season that I felt like I was growing, I was developing, but for two or three days straight, the Lord brought uh, two people to my brain through that time. And there were people that about a decade prior to that moment, um, we'd had a falling out. Um, I'd not handled it the, the best way. I'd not handled it the way that I should have. And I felt like in that moment, the Lord was just asking me, go to these people and, and apologize. Now, I wanna be clear when I share this story with you, uh, this is not a prescription for what everybody should do. Like, like you probably all shouldn't just start looking at people you ticked off 20 years ago, okay? I, this was not done out of guilt or shame. This was done out of obedience because in a, in a moment in, in uh, my time with God, in several moments actually, I felt like God told me to reach out to these people. And so I, I did that. And I, I did it in the most chicken way possible. I looked them up on Facebook. And so I sent, them, I sent them both kind of the same email and the, or kind of the same message. And it just said, hey, uh, I know it's been a really long time. Um, it's been a really long time since we've talked, but I want you to know that I'm deeply sorry for what I did in that moment. And I, I said, I'm not the same person. I'm a different person uh, as I'm sure you are as well. And I felt like I owe you an apology for, for the circumstances. And it was very generic, it was, it was very basic. And I said, I hope you're doing well. I hope your life is going well. And that was it. And both of the people that I emailed, both of them responded in the exact same way. And they both said, hey, it's great to hear from you. Um, life's going well. Hey, I wasn't in a great spot too. And you know what? Um, you're, of course you're forgiven. And this is, this, they were very touched that I, that I even reached out and they said, of course you're forgiven. I hope, I hope your life is going well too. And can I tell you when I received the response to those emails, it was the most freeing and painful thing on the planet because their response to me was communicating the reality of what I knew I had done. And at that point, I couldn't pretend any longer that it wasn't that big of a deal. I couldn't pretend any longer that like I hadn't really hurt them. I couldn't pretend or just sweep it under the rug at all. I had to come face to face with my own brokenness in that moment. Yet at the same time, there was a freedom that came out of that that is unexplainable. There was a freedom that came out of that that was significant for me. And I say that to say this, that when we read the story of the two lost sons in scripture, God is trying to help us understand something that's very important. First and foremost, that all of our sin is equally sin. It is broken. It is, um, it is equally offensive. It equally hurts the heart of God, regardless of whether you have open and obvious sin or you have internal and private sin. 
It is, it is all equal at the foot of the cross. But the second thing and the, the most important thing that we should take out of this passage is that regardless of what your sin looks like, regardless of what your brokenness looks like, that you have a heavenly father who so deeply desires first and foremost to bring you back into a place of restoration. And whether you've walked, begun to walk down that road or you're, you're like the, the younger son and you're still on a journey back to admitting those issues, there is a heavenly father who loves you, who cares for you, who sees you and is standing on his toes at the end of his porch and he is waiting for you to come back. And he's not waiting for you to come back to, to tell you how, how jacked up what you did is. He's not waiting for you to come back so that, you, so that he can tell you how broken you are, but he is waiting to receive you with open arms. And he desires so much for you to, for you to be aware of those issues, for you to admit those things. And in your admission, receive the gift of grace that he has already made for you. And this is how Jesus tells this story and asks for it to shape our lives. That we see, that we see ourselves as who we are, broken people who are all equal at the foot of the cross and who equally need that gift of grace. But we also see him so desiring to be in relationship with us. Would you stand with me all over the room today? your head's bowed, I just, I just want to take a moment and ask this question. I want to ask this question. If you're in, if you're in here today and you say, there's some things that I've, I've intentionally pretended are not as big of, a, of an issue but while you've been talking, that, that thing or that, that, that issue has been coming to mind. And I know I need to admit that this, is, that this is an issue. Nobody's looking around, everybody's heads bowed, everybody's eyes are closed. If that's you, would you do me a favor and just lift your hand? It's just me and you, yeah, 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 yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, yeah. Father, I pray for those that are, that are raising their hands, that they're allowing this story um, that Jesus gives us to shape them, to shape how they view uh, their own brokenness, but also to shape how they view your grace. Father, we can't go anywhere where your grace won't reach us. And we, we are thankful for that. We are thankful that there is nothing that we can do, nothing, no sin that we can commit, no brokenness that we can um, stumble upon where your grace doesn't reach us and touch us and cover us. Father, we thank you for that. And even as we begin to sing this song that talks about you being our only hope, God, you being our hope. Father, as we, as we sing that, let this be a moment where yes, we acknowledge our brokenness, but also we celebrate in the freedom that we found in you. It's in Jesus' name, the strong son of God, we ask this, amen.